I'm Rob. I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Recorded Podcast. And week two. This is week two of Nicolas Cage Month. Mm-hmm. The month that we set up under the premise of being good and bad Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. This was supposed to be a good Nicolas Cage. And I'm wondering if we need to alter the premise of this movie yeah. or supplement this theme month because. Tonight's movie was the 1997 film Con Air, mm-hmm. which I remember being extremely popular. Yeah, yeah. I swear I watched it once before, but watching it tonight, I'm not sure if I saw it all the way through. Oh, really? Or if I stopped partway through. Because um, there was a few things in this movie I didn't remember. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure that this is anymore that this is good Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. Or... This just doesn't hold up that well. This was popular Nicolas Cage. And this is an extremely 1990s movie. Yeah. And that's why I say I don't, I'm not sure if the issue is just that it doesn't hold up. Or, or exactly I what. do think it would have been... A, and sometimes it's hard to kind of project yourself back in time. And I, this is the first time I've seen this. I've seen bits and pieces of it. Uh-huh. And I knew it mostly by reputation. I think if I had seen it closer to 1997, I think it would have worked better. But it does seem dated. It is of a style that we you don't see too much anymore. It is kind of heavy-handed, for, for lack of a better word. Oh, yeah. And very implausible. And, yeah, there's a lot there's of There's a lot of silly things in this film. Yeah. yeah. But it is, a, it is a, by its nature, a silly film. But I think it probably... I don't, it's not a movie that was ever to be approached straight... But I think it would have seemed a lot straighter in 1997 than it seems now. It seems kind of campy, and just the amount of supervillains and like recognizable character actors as bad guys on the plane. This is a movie about a guy who's a good guy gets trapped on a plane with a bunch of criminals trying to yeah. escape. The basic premise is that, I mean, con air is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Like the U.S. Marshals Service transports prisoners around the country on airplanes, and. So the premise is, is that Nicolas Cage's character, Cameron Poe, was in prison for an involuntary manslaughter. He gets kind of an unfair sentence, yeah. and he's now about to be released, but he needs to... And this is a legitimate thing. He needs to be transported back to the original prison where he was sentenced. Because, like, that's that's a thing. Like, you get released where you got incarcerated. So while they might have housed him in a different part of the country, which is a common thing in the federal system... They would have transported him back for his release. But his wife and kid were in Nevada and California. But I thought he was in Alabama when he got arrested. That part didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Maybe they relocated to be closer to where he was incarcerated. I don't know. But so that's why Nicolas Cage's character is supposed to be on this flight. Is he's just supposed to be being transported back to his prison of origin. And then there's a collection of super baddies being sent to a new supermax prison which, on the same flight, which so, makes no, yeah yeah. Well, can you guess what film this movie made me think of? Not off the top of my head. A Suicide Squad. Okay. It just like the the way they assembled these guys and pointed out the weird eccentricities of them. This is what it reminded me of. Yeah. Most of the, the, the characters in this movie, the, the, the other bad guys, I was fine with. The one that makes zero sense to me, can, can you guess? Steve Buscemi? Yeah. He's like, got a They bring on the, the Hannibal Lecter-like guy huh? on like the transfer flight, who has nothing to do with the plot of the movie, 
and it's just a really random, creepy bad guy. He is weird, and he's got a, he's got a weird redemption arc question mark where he doesn't kill the kid. Well, he doesn't kill the kid. So the, so when the when the the plane is stuck in Wendover, and we've been to some of these locations. Yes. Steve Buscemi, who's supposed to be this guy who killed like thirty two people, and talks at one point about wearing a girl he killed's head as a hat. But not like a child, like a woman. Yeah, a woman's head is a hat. And he wanders off while they're they're trying to refuel their plane. And get it out of the unstuck. Yeah, get it unstuck from the sand. And he meets this girl who's having a tea party in an empty pool in this s-hole little community in the desert. And the implication for a while is you think he's going to kill her. Or that he has killed her at a certain point. And then she shows up fine. And she, he took like a Ken doll thing yep. from her, and he because the little girl saying he's got the whole world in his hands with him, it like changed him. Yeah. And so at the end, he's got his little. He's in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas gambling at yeah. the very end, he just kind of snuck away quietly. It's like, how are we supposed to feel about this? I feel like we're supposed to like Steve Buscemi, but I don't. But we're not supposed to like Steve Buscemi. He killed thirty-two people. Yeah, it's. It was odd, and there's so many things about this movie that are just so weird and goofy, you know. It's got a major chronological problem. Oh, yeah. And part of the the plot of this movie is that John Malkovich, whose character name is Cyrus the Virus, Cyrus the Virus Grissom, is helping, he along with Nick Chinland, whose character name is William Billy Bedlam Bedford. Dave Chappelle. Ving Rhymes. Ving Rhymes, um, Dave Chappelle, yeah. They're all trying to help another prisoner who's going to be transferred onto the plane at a later time escape, and they're supposed to be flying with him to Mexico yeah, this is and like, be getting paid. And This guy is part from a drug, drug lord family, Yeah, and so somehow John Malkovich has made some deal. To, to, well, you to, saw how the, the, the picture of the Last Supper with yeah. the eyes poked out so that he could see the text. It and, makes so so much sense, doesn't it? Yeah. This, film, this film makes so much sense. But that's how they were communicating. So anyways, they land in... Where was that little airport? The Podunk Airport? It, it is literally Wendover. Well, it's Wendover, but where is it supposed to be in the movie? It's supposed to be somewhere in... It's in Southern California. Yeah, something like that. But I can't remember the name of their imaginary town. They land there, and the the drug cartel has a plane hidden, and they try to sneak off without the other prisoners. But John Cusack, as Agent Vince Larkin, foils, you know, and stops that plane. So So, then John Malkovich blows up, you know, burns down the plane at the gas station. The really cool-looking gas station. Yeah. It's like a Mad Max gas station. Yeah. And then, eventually, it has that crash landing on the Vegas Strip, which is probably the memorable visual from this film but john cusack's kind of interesting choice in this film and this is a buddy comedy and or a buddy action film with him and nicholas cage but they never actually meet until the very very end of the film where they have this chips moment where they both are they realize john malkovich still alive is on the fire truck so they're they, chasing they him down. both go i'd get on steal police motorcycles at the same time yeah, but this store. So, so John Malkovich works for what department? Not John Malkovich. Um, oh, John Cusack, Cusack, agent Vince Larkin. He works for the U.S. Marshals. For the U.S. Marshals. And, and Colin Meany, playing Agent Duncan Malloy, is a DEA, DEA agent. So the DEA had a had a fake prisoner, a plant on on the on the plane, 
as part of some kind of plan to, to get a, a prisoner to talk and admit to something on the duration of a flight implausible yeah. at best but agent Malloy call call Meany, has given the guy agent back his gun put a gun in his in his shoe which is like a threat of being discovered when they're releasing all the prisoners on the plane mm-hmm. and so he has to take one of the prisoners hostage to try and retake over the plane and of course so, he just gets shot and so killed. So Meany and Cusick have this rival branches kind of thing and it results in he has Cusick has to steal Meany's car, car because they're 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 following a, a transponder that when they stopped in Carson City they switched out the transponders so that Dave Chappelle takes the transponder and puts it in a in a tourist plane. Yeah. Which then takes off shortly after Con Air because the airport isn't secured properly or whatever, and so Meany is chasing the tourism helicopter or tourism plane in and attack helicopters. helicopters and a Huey to shoot it down, and it's the wrong airplane. Even though uh, John Cusack, Vince Larkin, has told them they're chasing the wrong plane, and he doesn't believe them and stuff. So he has to steal Manny's car in order to get to a certain location at a certain to time. To get to the airport, yeah. And then eventually the car is destroyed in kind of entertaining fashion. I mean, the, the, the plane pulling the... This is a nice convertible. Yeah, um, Corvette. Being, being pulled through the sky is a neat visual. Yeah. But like everything in this film, it's silly. And it's totally implausible how it gets hooked, you know. Yeah. But, you know, especially for how then it disconnects from the plane it's just yeah there's so many implausible things in this movie i want to go back to the big what i think is the biggest chronological problem in this film how his wife and child show up well no no this is this is a bigger problem this is the thing that my brain was trying to figure out throughout the entire film movie came out in 1997 the very beginning sequence nicholas cage sporting increasingly implausible hair and increasingly implausible accent is uh just gotten out of military service he's just graduated from some kind of training it's either implied that he's just gotten back from a deployment or he's getting out of the service something like that so he goes to this dive bar where his wife monica potter who has nothing to do in this film is and she's pregnant with their child and she's being harassed by these yahoos and the yahoos take a disliking to Nicolas Cage because he's in a military uniform and they decide to beat him up and in the process of beating him up he kills this guy and that's why he ends up in prison because this judge screws him over even though he's supposed to get a four-year sentence the judge says no less than seven to ten years well he says that you should have known better because because of your military training you were a deadly weapon so you should have known better so I'm going to sentence you to no less than seven to ten it's this dang Clinton appointed justice so, before that happens, where he's dancing with his wife at the bar, they are listening to a hit song of 1997. How Do I Live Without, do I live without You by Leanne Rimes. 1997. So that opening sequence is at the earliest, 1997. And so, assuming that he gets tried and sentenced that same year, at the earliest, he gets out in 2004. This film is set in the future. Okay. From when the film came out. Okay. There you go. That's what I was thinking about. Even though the... the, Well, I was going to say the song was written for the movie, but it wasn't written for the movie. It's actually a remake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
but she's the one that popularized it. Yep. Such yep. a 90s movie. Yeah. The and editing the, and, and the and editing the style, plot. the filming style, yeah. The like the those opening shots with the cuts between Monica Potter and Yeah. Nicolas Cage. Yeah, that was very 90s. And like the opening sequence, like when they meet each other again in the bar, that feels like another Nicolas Cage movie. The it could happen to you. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it feels very much like parts of it could happen to you. So, this movie though has a character who has previous or a actress who has previously appeared on oh, the podcast. Yeah, you're telling me, yes. We will touch on that very briefly. We also I mentioned to Nate off mic. Monica Potter, Potter, who is Trisha Poe, uh, Nicolas Cage's wife in this movie, is only the third billed woman in this in this movie. She is third behind Rochelle Ticketon, who is the guard Sally Bishop. Married to Peter Strauss. Is she? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also behind Landry Albright, whose character name is Casey Poe, the future daughter of Nicolas Cage in this movie. And Landry Albright has made a previous appearance on the podcast, not by name per se, but she is in the 2000 How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Anyways, in the 2000 How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Landry Albright is the eight-year-old Martha May Houvier. Ah. So she Christina has... Brinkley. Yep. Not so Christina she, Brinkley. That's her name. No, never mind. Yeah. I know who you mean, but yeah. So she's previously appeared on the podcast, um, but only loosely and tangentially. And you know what her birthday is? I didn't notice. July 14th. Her well, birthday in the, movie, in the movie. Yeah. They make a big deal out of that. And that is also my birthday. Yeah. How did you feel about sharing a birthday with these characters? Well, I also share this birthday with Harry Dean Stanton and Gerald Ford. That's also supposed to be the day that Nicolas Cage is going to be released and yes. all of these other things and yeah it's Bastille Day indeed it is did you know that this movie was nominated for two Oscars <laughs> blasphemy do you know which two Oscars uh, something with effects is, no is there an explosions category best explosions those weren't even good explosions so I hope that it wasn't nominated for that it was nominated for best sound okay sounds good and best music original song had for the, the how do I live? Huh. Song that did not win best best song. That would have been that's Titanic's year, right? So that would have been my heart. Will, I don't know if on. it was. Yeah, it would yeah. have been. But it it is. Yeah, it's such a. I mean, that that it's the song instantly puts you in the nineties. Yeah, and it sounds like the kind of song that would win best song. Yeah, and I agree, and especially in the nineties. Mm. You know, it's kind a, of has sappy, that sound. sappy love ballad. Yep, I guess one of the. Highlights of this film for us is filming locations. This has numerous Utah filming locations. The Exchange of the Prisoners, mm-hmm. that was filmed at the Ogden Airport, ah. which we've driven by, but not close enough that I think you would have realized we were driving by it. There's also numerous scenes filmed in Death Valley Desert Landing Salt Flats in Wendover, Utah. And there's film scenes filmed at the abandoned Army base there in Wendover, Utah. Which we have driven around a fair amount. We've been to that tower, and we've been to the... Uh, I'm not sure if that's the same... Oh. Yeah, because they have well, a museum there. Yeah, they, they built a temporary tower for oh, okay, this. for that. And there's a plane at the Wendover Airport that was used in the filming of this movie. Yeah, yeah we've been on uh, that plane. Yeah, we've been on the plane. 
and we've been to the Wendover Airport. I've spent a lot of time at the Wendover Airport. Mm. Did did I do the museum with you? Yeah. I couldn't remember if the museum was There wasn't was a lot to the museum. Well, no, the museum has the the models of the bombs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Little boy and, yeah. Mill Canyon, Utah, which I'm not sure where that is. Moab was listed. Yep, Moab, Utah. And then West Wendover, Nevada. So they filmed some of it across the state line. For those of you who are unfamiliar with that location, Nevada is a border town. It's Wendover. A, what did I say? He said Nevada is a border oh, town. Oh, Wendover is a border town. And there's part of Wendover. East Wendover is on the Utah side. Mm. And West Wendover is on the Nevada side. So all the casinos are on the are in West Wendover on the Nevada side. And then the airport is on the Utah side. And a bunch of the hotels are on the Utah side. But apparently, because there's there's a Wendover, Utah credit, and then there's a West Wendover, Nevada credit. So mm. they must have filmed... I think that that trailer park scene was in West Wendover. Yeah. But I'm not positive. There's a trailer park over there that looked fairly familiar. So mm. uh, my wife used to work in Wendover, so I'm quite familiar yeah. with Wendover as a town. So do you know how this did in the box office? Pretty good. Do you know much about it? No, I know it did well. So I, this I would had, guess it's a top ten video. Do you have any idea of what its budget was? Mm. This has an estimated budget of $75 million. That is a huge budget. For 1997. Even today it's a decent so budget. This is Its opening weekend domestically was only $24 million. Oh. I thought it might have fared a little bit better domestically on its open week, opening weekend. But its domestic gross was one hundred and one million. All right, mid money. And its worldwide gross was two hundred and twenty-four million. Good. So it made plenty of money. Yeah. I'm borderline surprised that there wasn't some attempt to make a sequel. Either a sequel or some other similar Spin plot. Off. Yeah. You got so. a, uh, You get Jodie Foster. And Hannibal Lecter to hunt for Steve Buscemi. There you so go. There's your movie. Yeah. What other thoughts do you have on this movie? It's just such a silly movie. Yeah. I'm glad I finally saw it. It was one of those films that I probably should have seen closer to when it came out. Yeah. Because it was, you know, for, for people our age in the late 90s, this would have been a cool movie. Yeah. And it was very culturally yeah, relevant. Yeah, culturally so. popular. And How would you rate this film? Oh, uh, it's not. It's not good. It's 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 okay. I was thinking for the longest time while I was watching it that I feel pretty close to neutral about it. Saying so, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I would probably give it a six on the ten star scale, and I'm gonna give it a two and a half because yeah. there's certain inventive things about it, and it's just one of the charms of it is just how intensely mid mid nineties it is. That's. <laughs> Then with the gasoline yeah. explosions mm-hmm. and yeah, I was torn. I'm, I'm we're in the same ballpark. I'm only going to give this two stars on the four star scale, and I'm really torn between a five and a six on the ten star scale. Mm-hmm. But we're not far apart. It's not worth you know prolonged argument about it. This has a on IMDb. Its Metacritic score is only fifty two, so it's very middling in terms of that. It's. IMDb aggregate rating is 6.9 out of 10 stars. So, you know, something below 7 stars on IMDb, not not super great. Mm-hmm. I uh, assume that this had better ratings early on. 
I'm, yeah, I would assume so. I would assume that people liked it more than than, than people revisiting it. It's because it is so dated. I'm going to give this movie some some unearned credit, and I'm going to compare it to Charade. Oh yeah, Charade is famous as the best Alfred Hitchcock film that Alfred Hitchcock didn't make. Uh huh. Directed by Stanley Donen. This is the best Michael Bay film that Michael Bay didn't make. <laughs> it does feel very much like a Michael mm-hmm. Bay film. Yeah. It's actually directed by Simon West. Who's known for, also known for uh, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, The General's Daughter. And I haven't seen The Mechanic from 2011, have you? I'm not. It was written by Scott Rosenberg, who was a producer on Jumanji The Next Level and was the writer of Gone in 60 Seconds, so connection to Nicolas Cage. But if you see this movie, it'll be... Gone in 60 seconds. Wow. From when you finished that joke, just kind of died on the vine. Yeah. It is a little bit of a Chinese food movie. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, it gets empty calories, and you want you want another movie when this yeah. is done. <laughs> I mean, if you're in the mood for a explosions action film... This is almost with a no film real substance that would plot. be best to see on basic cable. Yeah. Like, this film, I think would benefit from commercial breaks somehow yeah probably i kind of wish it's, it's something that you just want to kind of half pay attention to part of me now wishes that we had done like gone in 60 seconds instead of this i feel like there might be good trivia about this movie i guess we could do that after we end the show huh we've given our ratings yeah you've given yourself that. some editing headaches yeah so i'm rob and i'm nate and this is rob and nate record a podcast You are in a crazy mood today. What is going on? I don't know. I'm in a weird one. I guess John Malkovich was unhappy during production because the script was constantly being rewritten. Oh, okay. This seems like, if I can imagine this as a film that's being rewritten while it's being shot. Feels like it was rewritten while it was being shot. I mean, you can see that in the edits, so. You know, sometimes you can get a great movie and not know how it's going to end when you start filming. The example that comes to mind is Meet John Doe, and they did not have an ending for it as they started rolling cameras. And they're like, we'll come up with something. And they came up with a good ending. It's a classic yep. film. Yep. This film had the plane hitting the Hard Rock Cafe, which again, super 90s. Was, yeah. yeah. Product placement. Yep. You know, Bruce Willis wanted in on this. So there was a dedication at the beginning of this film. Did you catch that? I did not. It was dedicated to Phil Schwartz, who I now feel slightly bad about because... Mm-hmm. He was an effects specialist who died while filming uh, when a rigged plane fell and crushed him. Uh-huh. So, Yeah, and before that, it was going to be dedicated to non-discerning audiences. The Las Vegas scenes were filmed at the legendary Sands Hotel immediately prior to its demolition in 1996. I was thinking that, I, I, because I thought, when I saw the Sands, like, didn't that go down right around this time? Shouldn't yeah. they just aim the plane for the Sands? <laughs> So when the production team heard about the city's intention to raise the historic landmark, they immediately scheduled a multi-camera setup to take advantage of the rare event, which is what you actually see in the movie. So, John John Cusack allegedly dislikes this film so much he refuses to be interviewed about it. (laughs) That's my favorite thing about this film. Nicolas Cage traveled to Alabama to 
perfect his accent. Oh, by that accent. Yeah. Which sometimes he's committed to and sometimes he's not. Oh, evidently this face-off and The Rock are considered by many Nicolas Cage fans to be his holy trinity of action films. Mm -hmm. That seems blasphemous to even tag that that way. The song How Do I Live was nominated both for an Oscar as Best Original Song and a Razzie as Worst Original (laughs) Song. It didn't win either award. Uh, Middling. Yeah. Oh, Colin Meany's keychain has a Star Trek communicator ornament on it. And he played Chief Miles O'Brien mm-hmm. on Star Trek The Next Generation. And Deep, and Space, Deep Nine. Space Nine. That's what I was thinking of when I watched this. I'm like, this must have been during it, during hiatus from production. Yeah. That, is, that was kind of the middle of the show's run. Yeah. And the car that DE agent Duncan Malloy drives is a 1967 Corvette Stingray C2. And at the time of filming, would have retailed for $38,000. He was getting bored with the car anyway. Yeah, evidently. William Defoe and Mickey Rourke both auditioned for the part of Cyrus. Okay. I'd see either of those. Yeah. But I guess they decided on John Malkovich anyway, which is fine. John Malkovich is great. The movie was inspired by a newspaper article about a plane that transports convicts. Very poor inspiration. And you can see why this movie turned out the way it did. So, good enough. Yeah. Nicolas Cage was in good shape for this movie. Good enough is a good summation of this film. I think that's a little bit overly generous to mm. this film. But yeah, Nicolas Cage was in good shape for this film, yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't remember seeing Nicolas Cage in that good of shape at any other time. He was he was, uh, he was probably prepping for the never-made-Superman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I really do feel like we screwed up on this one that we need to supplement or something uh, or, or alter the theme of the month because this was not good Nicolas Cage. No. So... Yeah, see that's that's the that or else we're defeating the premise of the the trick. That's the thing. Yeah, it's like it's like if you haven't seen it going into it, you don't know. Or we're just going to end up proving that all Nicolas Cage films are bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing that's in the outtakes. (laughs) I listened to a interview with Seth Rogen today, Mm -hmm. and evidently he has repeatedly pissed off Nicolas Cage. Oh yeah, and Nicolas Cage has attempted some form of action against him as a result, but. Yeah, they didn't get too much into it, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other witty things for us? Come mm-hmm. on, you were witty all night. I was... Or snarky all night. I was snarky because I was a little bored. Yeah? A little? Yeah. Just a little? A little. Yeah? So you're more entertained by me trying to make you be snarky? Yeah. So we've all heard the, uh, the old debate. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Uh-huh. But I think the more interesting question is... Is Psycho a Mother's Day movie? Yes. Because it is about devotion to one's mother. Above and beyond the call of duty. I'm going to put it this way. And you know I come down in the camp of Die Hard not strictly being a Christmas movie. Okay. But if you're going to maintain the position of Die Hard being a Christmas movie, then Psycho's a Mother's Day movie. Indeed. Who is the most important character in Psycho? The killer? It's been most, so long since the, I've seen Psycho. The character that is most central to everything happening in the movie that happens in the movie. Tom Cassidy, played by Frank Albertson. No. It's the guy that is buying the house for his 18-year-old daughter who's getting married. And is at the place where Janet uh, Lee works and is flirting with her and showing off. If he hadn't flirted with her and shown off with the $40,000, he 
She never would have gotten the idea. She never would have stolen the money. She never would have ended up at Bates Hotel and been murdered. No. He is the most important character in the film. There you go. 